James chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning as we continue to put feet to our faith. James 2, we're going to be discussing a subject that real faith really works. Real faith really works. Have you ever seen a visual contradiction? Something just contradicts itself? Anybody ever watched that old TV series called Lost? Anybody ever watched Lost? Nobody? Somebody? You know, the polar bear on an island? It's kind of like contradicting itself, isn't it? Uh, this past Tuesday, Josh and I drove up to um, Carson Newman University, and we got to Athens, and man, it was snowing everywhere. Snow all over. It was beautiful, beautiful drive up there. Of course, it was a great drive for Josh because I was in the car with him, so that's, that just makes everything so much better. And, and on the way back, we got to Hickson about 220, and the deg- it was about... It was about 29 degrees outside, and we passed by this motorcycle lot where motorcycles are, kind of like a, a car lot, and there's a guy out there with just bundled up head to toe. You, I mean, he's totally covered, and he's shopping for a motorcycle. That visual just seemed to be contradictory. He's freezing, and yet he's shopping for a motorcycle. When we come to James chapter 2, We come to a section of Scripture that is pointed to often as being, yep, this is where the Bible contradicts itself. People point to this and say this is contradictory because of what James 2, James has to say about somebody I think you've heard of before. His name is Abraham. Anybody ever heard of Abraham? Well, what James has to say about Abraham in James 2 seems to be different than what Paul has to say about Abraham in Romans chapter 4. So here's the, here's the conundrum here. James 2 verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Paul says this about the same Abraham in Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. So do you see what's happening? It seems as if there is a contradiction here that's more contradictory than a icicle of a man shopping for a motorcycle in below freezing weather. And what it is, it seems that James is saying one thing and Paul is saying another. It may seem that way. Is the Bible contradicting itself? Is this a contradiction in the Word of God? Is Paul saying that Abraham was justified by faith? And is James saying that Abraham was justified by works? When it comes to this, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Are Paul and James on two different pages? Are they contradicting one another? Well, Dr. Adrian Rogers answers this better than I ever could in a message entitled, An Autopsy of a Dead Faith. So I'm just going to quote him, okay? So here we go. Paul is speaking of faith before God. James is speaking of faith before men. 
The key is in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith. James is talking about the kind of faith that you see, okay? And he's talking about a show-so faith. Paul is talking about a no-so faith. Paul speaks of the root of our salvation. James speaks of the fruit of our salvation. Now, the root is beneath the ground. You can't see the root, but the fruit is above the ground. You ought to be able to see the fruit. Paul is speaking of the provision of salvation. James is speaking of the proof of our salvation. Paul speaks of the means of our salvation. James speaks of the marks of our salvation. Paul speaks of a no-so salvation. James speaks of a show-so salvation. And so the Bible is not contradicting itself. Paul and James are speaking from two different sides of the same coin of salvation. So we'll see how all this plays out in James 2, verse 14. If you're there, say I'm there. All right, look at verse 14. Let's read this together. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute Justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Gracious Father, we, we have gathered in this place today. There are men, women, boys, and girls in this room today. There are men, women, boys, and girls that have logged in and are watching us via live stream. There are men, women, boys, and girls that are tuning in and watching us via television. And so, God, each one of these uh, represents a soul. And each one of us would probably say, at least in this room, that we have some type of faith, maybe watching at home or on the Internet, that there's some type of faith that we have. But God, today I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us diagnose, dissect, what kind of faith we truly have. I pray, Lord, that you would point out if our faith is dead or not today. In the name of Jesus, how we pray that you would help dissect our faith, an autopsy of our faith to see if it's dead, to see if it's alive. Lord, we pray that you will not let us leave this place. You'll not let us stop listening or watching until we have settled it in our heart that our faith is alive. 
We ask all this in in the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, I want to show you five types of faith. And I want to do that under the umbrella of this takeaway truth. So here, if you were to sum up James 2, 14 through 26, the simplest way I can say what James is saying is this. Faith without works doesn't work. Okay? Faith without works is not a working faith. It's a dead faith. Faith without works doesn't work. And so I want to point out five types of faith in our remaining time together this morning. Number one, it's from James 2, 14 through 17, and it is a bombastic faith. A bombastic faith doesn't work. Now, bombastic means prideful, boastful, and pompous. Okay, a pompous, boastful, arrogant, bombastic faith does not work work. James says it this way in verse 14. What good is it? What does it benefit? What is, what advantage is it? What gain is it? My brothers, if someone says, so you need to understand what James is explaining to us here. He's talking about a person who is bragging about their faith. They are saying, somebody say says. Yeah, they're proclaiming. They're saying that they have faith. They're bragging and they're boasting about their faith, but there's a problem. What's the problem? He says he has faith. She says she has faith, but there's no works. Continually, this is a present tense, does not have works. It's a continual condition of the heart. There's no fruit. There's no evidence. There's no proof. There's no works. There's, it's dead. Serious question. James is being serious. He's not making a joke. What good is it? I mean, he's, it's a sobering question, but it's a, it's a serious question that he's asking. If someone says this, but they have not works, what, what good is this? So here, James is saying, listen, talk is cheap. Have, have, has your mouth ever written a check that your life can't cash? Jabber on and on and on and on and on about you and your faith. And listen, America is full of people who are full of themselves. Amen? <laughs> Churches in America are full of people who are full of themselves, right? And we like to talk, our favorite subject to talk about is ourselves, and we brag and go on and on. And, and what I've learned is people with the biggest mouths about their faith are normally the ones with the emptiest lives. Just vain, pointless, empty lives. Folks who have the biggest mouths, folks who have the biggest social media presence. And, and what boggles my mind is they create their own storms of drama, and then they get mad when it rains. I, I, don't, I don't understand that. So James is saying, if you're bragging and bombastic and boastful and arrogant about your faith, yet there's no works at all, what, what good is that? And then he gives this shocking situation, and it is quite shocking. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, one of them says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Again, what does that benefit? What gain is that? What advantage is that? So you need to know what James is describing here is actually worse than the Levite and the priest who pass by on the other side the one left for dead by the robbers. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan where Jesus was trying to explain who is your neighbor and how to be neighborly. And he tells this parable. 
in Luke 10, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers. They stripped him. They beat him. They departed, left him, left him for dead, left him for dead. And so now comes a priest, and, and a priest happens along, and, and he, when he saw the man in need, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, here comes a Levite. He too saw the man in need, passed by on the other side. Now, when, when oftentimes when you hear this tall, the, the application is church, we're the Levite and the priest, and that's, that's fair, that's a good application. But James is... He's raising the bar here. James saying, wait a minute. And we can all relate to the Levite and the priest. I mean, we're all busy. There's nobody in this room that is not busy. I mean, our business is being busy. Busyness is our business. That's, what, that's the business we're in is to be busy. We're all busy. We all have schedules to meet. We all have people to see and meetings to make and people depending on us. And so we can understand if we see somebody in need and we think, well, I just can't get to it right now. I'm just busy. And so we pass by on the other side. And there may be good reasons why we're passing by on the other side. But James says, listen, what I'm explaining to you is, is even worse than the Levite and the priest. Because get this whole picture here. James is saying that we see somebody in need. We have this bombastic, boastful, arrogant faith. We see somebody in need. We don't go around to the other side. We actually stop and we give them advice. You ever have somebody give you advice? I mean, their finances are in shambles and they're giving you advice on your finances. You ever have anybody do that? Or somebody tell you how to parent your children and they don't have any kids? Come on, church. You ever anybody do that? Or tell you how to run a business they've never had one? Or tell you what you need to do to work out and they don't work out? <laughs> That's what James is explaining here. That, hey, you, you not, not only did you not pass by on the other side, when we see somebody in need, we stop and we begin to tell them how great our church is. Oh, let me brag on my church. Let me brag on my staff. Let me brag on my pastor. Let me brag on our service. and our, Let me brag on our orchestra and our choir. And let me brag on our, our ministries and our benevolent ministry and our missions. And let me brag about how awesome my faith is and how faithful I've been for 40 years a member at Red Bank Baptist Church. Oh, let me tell you about my church. All the while, they're dying on the inside. They're in need. And we're bragging about, and, and then we up at a level. Then we take it to a whole nother level, and we start telling them what they need to do and what they need not do. You know, if you'd have been in church, you wouldn't have ended up here. You know that? If you'd have taken another road, you wouldn't have fell among robbers. Hey, if you'd have been in church, your life would have gone a different path, and you wouldn't be dying on the inside. All the while, they're in need, dying on the inside. And we're giving advice on what they need to do and need not do. And we're not meeting their needs. And we look at them and we say, okay, good luck and goodbye. I hope your next meal's a nice meal. Bye-bye. And we just walk on. And James said, this is worse than the Levite and the priest. What he is describing here is far worse. And he makes this statement. So also faith by itself, if it does not have worse, it's dead. I mean, what good is that? What use is that? Trevin Wack said it this way, when we say we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, when we say that, when we say we are the hands and feet of Jesus, church, we need to remember what happened to the hands and feet of Jesus. 
He showed his love for us by having stakes driven through his hands and feet. He showed mercy. He demonstrated mercy and love. This bombastic faith, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. If you have bombastic faith, I pray and hope you'll repent of that today. Second type of faith here, stoic faith. Stoic faith doesn't work. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, verse 18 just doesn't work, okay? Here's the problem. This is a, certainly, James is describing a hypothetical scenario here, and he's saying, okay, let's say someone says, you're just different than me, and I'm just different than you. You're very public with your faith. Uh, you, you get involved in things. But, you know, my faith is private. I, I don't have works, but I have, I have faith, and you have works. And so uh, what this person is trying to do is separate the two. And James is saying you cannot separate faith from works. You, you can't do that. James is saying, listen, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. So someone says, look, you have faith, I have work. We're separate. They're inseparable. You, you can't separate them. Faith and works are like peanut butter with honey, right? They go together. Faith and works are like Sam and Tanya. They just go together, and they're inseparable. You cannot separate them. That's James's point. And so he makes a very practical point here. You show me your faith apart from works, and I'll show you my faith by my... Again, he is talking about faith between you and I. I'm not God, you're not God. You can't see my heart, I can't see your heart. Okay? So this is not faith before God, as Paul said. This is faith. But if, if I'm going to show you, I can't show you my faith without showing you my faith, right? All right let's say you got two, two guys or two ladies, two people over here at the FLC. And one of them says to the other, I have basketball skills. Like I got, I got mad skills on the basketball court. And the other one said, I too have mad skills on the basketball court. And then one says, okay, you show me your mad skills, basketball skills, without playing basketball, and I'll show you my skills, basketball skills, by playing basketball. Can I show you uh, my skills in playing basketball without engaging in any athletic activity? Can I show you that? No, I can say it. And that's James's whole point. But I can't show it. So stoic faith, it doesn't show anything, doesn't work. Don't get stuck in stoic faith. Listen, we are saved, yes, by grace alone, through faith alone, but faith is never alone. It's impossible to show your faith without works, and, and works is the way we show our faith to a dead, dying, broken world. Works don't earn salvation, they confirm it. Number three, this one's tough. You think the first two are bad, here we go. If I hadn't offended you yet, hold on. Your time's coming right here. Verse 19, you ready? Everybody in here is going to be offended. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. 
Demonic faith. Demonic faith doesn't work. And what I mean by demonic, I don't mean faith in demons. I mean faith like the demons. James, the Holy Spirit is telling us here that demons have faith. Do you understand this? Yes, demons believe there's one God. Yes. One true God. Yes. And they're still going to hell. Yes. That should scare the hell out of somebody. It just flat out should. They sh- they're shuddering. They shudder. How much more should the hair stand up on our neck and us just be terrified? So what is James getting to here? Well, let's look at it again. You believe that God is one, you do well. So here's, here's, here's the bottom line. Genesis 1-1. What is Genesis 1-1? How, how does the Bible begin? In the beginning what? In the beginning, God. The, the Bible does not begin with, with, an, with an apologetic discourse trying to convince you that God exists. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible begins with this just assumption that you have faith in God. In the beginning, God. Right? That's where faith begins. And so that's why James says, you believe in God, you do well. That's where faith begins. It's not where it ends. If it was where it ends, that's all the Bible we would need. In the beginning, God. And then we wouldn't need the rest of the Scripture. But that's not where it ends. That's where it begins. And so James says, good, you believe in God, you're doing well. Good. Hey, guess what? Even the demons believe. And not only do they believe, they shudder at their belief. They're terrified at their belief. And so I did a quick survey just through, the, through the, the New Testament on what the demons believe. And this is not an exhaustive list. It's quite a list, but it's not an exhaustive list. And I just want to share with you what the demons believe, what the Bible says demons believe. And, and by the way, demons are not atheists, okay? They're not skeptics. They're not agnostic. And if you would define a liberal as one who doubts the truth, There are no liberal demons in all of creation because they don't doubt the truth. And I've got proof here from the truth. Demons believe in the deity of Christ. Mark 3.11, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they said, you are the son of God. They believe in the deity of Christ. Uh, they believe in the humanity of Christ. Luke 4, a spirit and an unclean demon said to Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? The humanity of Christ, they believe. They believe in the holiness of God. Luke 4, 34, I know who you are. Jesus, you, you are the Holy One of God. They believe in the true preaching of the gospel. Uh, this is shocking, Acts 16, 17, a slave girl who had a spirit, a demonic spirit, she was following Paul, and she kept saying that these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. They recognize true gospel preaching. They also recognize false gospel preaching. In Acts 19, some Jewish exorcists sought to invoke the name of Jesus to drive out evil spirits. And the evil spirits said to the Jewish exorcist, Jesus we know, right? (laughs) Paul we recognize, who are you? And what is this you're teaching, right? They recognize false teaching. Uh, demons believe in hell. Luke 8, 31, a man from the tombs who had a legion of demons. And these demons, they begged Jesus not to command them to go into the, and depart into the abyss, into the final place of punishment. They believe in hell. 
They believe Jesus is judge. Mark 5, 7. Demon-possessed man said to Jesus, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He recognized Jesus as the one who judges. Uh, they believe in the final day of judgment. The demons believe. So many people today believe the end will never come. Well, the demons believe it. In fact, Matthew 8, 29, have you come here to torment us before the time? They believe in that time. They believe in the sovereignty of Jesus. Uh, Mark 5, 11, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission to enter the pigs. They recognize his authority and his sovereignty. They recognize the lordship of Jesus. This is fascinating. Mark 5, 6, and when, and when this demon possessed saw Jesus from afar, the Bible says he ran and fell down before him. They believe in the word of God. They believe the power of the word. Matthew 17, 18, Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And I can go on and on. We can spend the rest of our time doing this. Here's, here's the bottom line. R.C. Sproul said it like this. If the devil, uh, he said it like this, the devil would make an A in my systematic theology class. D don't, don't play Bible trivia with a demon. You will lose every single solitary time. They believe everything about this word. They know it's true. And it terrifies them. They shudder. They're like freaked out, literally in the Greek. It freaks them out. Kind of like if you were to go to a haunted house and it's midnight and you're walking through there and you hear a door creak open and you hear some footsteps coming up behind you and you can't go anywhere and you can't move and your muscles tense up and you have that cold breath on your neck. Somebody puts their hand on you and that terror, that's what these demons are terrified. They are shuddering. And it's fascinating to me, these demons are not causing people to shudder. They are shuddering. Why? Because they know Jesus is the Son of God. They absolutely believe uh, that, that he is the Christ. They can't escape him. They can't deny him. And they're terrified of him. W.A. Criswell, when he preached this text, gave this illustration, and I'm going to use it today. Uh, the devil came to a local church like this one to join the church. And the pastor asked the devil as he came forward, do you believe in the Bible? He said, absolutely, I believe in the Bible. He said, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Without a doubt, the devil said. Do you believe in the virgin birth? Birth, of course, I was there, the devil said. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? Again, I saw it happen, yes. Uh, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Absolutely. Do you believe Jesus is coming again? The devil said, of course. Will you be faithful in attending church? The devil said, I'll be there every time the doors are open. Do you hear and now repent of your sin? Will you turn from your sin, bow your knee, and trust in Jesus alone as your Savior? The devil said, oh, I can't do that. That I cannot do. I wonder how many of us believe everything that the Bible has to say, but yet all we've done is practice demonic faith. That is, that is faith like the demons. You believe it all, but you, you've, never, you've never turned, you've never repented of your sin. You've never turned from your sin and put your faith totally relying upon Christ. It's total reliance upon him, and you've never done that. You've never done that. I wonder if that's you today. I, listen, I'm praying. Here's my prayer. I just pray the Holy Spirit would just dissect our faith today. 
I'm praying we have ears to hear, church. I'm, I've been broken up about this all week, and I'm just praying that the Holy Spirit would speak and we would listen and we'd respond. Are you practicing demonic faith? Vance Havner said it like this, Satan is not fighting churches, he's joining them. He does more harm by sowing tares than by pulling up wheat. He accomplishes more by imitation than by outright opposition. Listen, I'm for you, I love you, I don't want you to go to hell. Heaven's to Betsy, I don't want Betsy going to hell. But the only way Betsy's going to go to heaven is if she puts her faith in Christ, totally relying upon him. Not thinking she can partly rely upon him, but total surrender, total repentance, which Lucifer and his demons will never do, never do. I, I pray that you've done that, and if not, you'll do it today. Here's the fourth type of faith. This is a very quick one. This one won't take long. Verse 20, it's just, again, a reiteration of the apathetic faith that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless, it's of no use, it's vain, it's empty, it's of no use. Faith and works can't be separated. Zig Ziglar said it like this, don't be upset by the results you did not get with the work you did not do. Faith and works cannot be separated. Yes, we're saved through faith alone, but faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by works, right? We're justified by faith And then that faith, as we work it out, shows itself through works. This is the last one right here, last one. Salvific faith works. We finally get to a faith that's going to work. <laughs> the first four don't work. But we come to this last one in verse 21 through 26. And two different individuals here, two different personalities, two people from two opposite sides of the track, if you can explain them that way. And both of them. Both of them experienced salvific faith. Both of them. Although they're completely different. The first one is Abraham. Anybody ever heard of Abraham? Yes, Abraham. Let's see Abraham, verse 21. Here we go. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scriptures fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and has counted him as righteousness. So Abraham was saved, just like you and I are, by faith. However, he proved that faith through his works, by offering Isaac. I mean, how? again, look what James says here. Abraham believed God and it was kind to him as righteous. How do, how do we know that he believed God? He offered up his son. His work was he offered up his son Isaac on the altar because he believed that somehow God would bring Isaac back from the dead somehow. He just believed God about the promise he made to him that he would make his name great and he'd be the father of many nations. He just outright believed God. And so he believed him so much he was willing to do something. His living faith was a moving faith. And we see this all through Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah built. There's the works. By faith, Abel offered. There's the work. By faith, Enoch walked. By faith, Abraham left. 
and went to a land he had no clue where he was going. By faith, Isaac offered. By faith, Moses refused. By faith, people marked. By faith, Rahab hid. And on and on and on. By faith, living faith is a moving faith. It moves. Salvific faith is a moving faith. So Abraham was justified, yes, through faith alone, by grace alone, in his God alone. But the way he showed that was by offering Isaac up on the altar because he believed God would do what God said he would do. I know of at least one song about Abraham. Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. That's why I don't get to sing in the choir, obviously. (laughs) We know that song, right? I don't know of one song about Rahab. Not one song. Abraham represents the faithful. Abraham represents those who, who believed God and who were, who, were, who, were, who were chosen. Like Abraham was chosen to be a, a father of many nations and be great. Make God's name great. And then we have this faithful one called Abraham. And then over here we have this filthy one called Rahab. A prostitute. How is she going to have salvific faith, man? The same way Abraham did. Look what it says in verse 25. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers? When you receive the gospel message, okay, this message, uh, and man, what a glorious message it is. You say, well, what is the message? Genesis 22, the, the account of Abraham taking his son up to worship. Man, what, what, a, what a picture that is of worship. Abraham said, son, we're going to worship. Do you know the number one stumbling block for children and worship for, that keeps children from worshiping? You know the number one stumbling block that keeps our students, our teenagers, and our children from worshiping? Parents who don't. Abraham said, son, we're going to worship. So he got Isaac, and they headed up that mountain to worship. And as they were going to worship, we have this incredible picture, this foreshadowing of Calvary and the cross. Yeah, Abraham was asked, but he was only asked to sacrifice his son. So he raised that knife, and then he heard the voice and the ram in the thicket. But God, he actually sacrificed his son. He actually followed through with it. There was no ram in the thicket when God crushed his son on the cross. Jesus is the lamb that was crushed. Isaac carried the wood to Mount Moriah. Jesus carried the cross to Calvary. Isaac was laid on the altar. Jesus was nailed to the cross. The ram was offered in the place of Isaac. Jesus is offered in the place of sinners like you and me. Abraham received his son back figuratively, and he did. When Abraham put his, when Isaac was laid on that altar and Abraham lifted that knife, in Abraham's mind, Isaac's already dead, man. And yet, figuratively, God brought him, gave him back. But Jesus, praise God, he was literally risen from the dead. So you say, well, Pastor, I see that. Uh, Rahab had this faith. She received the messengers, and then she, that, that living faith was a moving faith, and she sent them out another way. She put some feet to her faith. Abraham put some feet to his faith and said, Hey, Isaac, let's go worship. And Rahab put some feet to her faith and say, Hey, y'all need to go this way. 
Are you putting feet to your faith or is it stoic, bombastic, demonic, apathetic, or is it a salvific faith that is alive and is moving? So, Pastor, how much faith does it take? You know, in the 19th century, there was a, a tightrope walker who walked over Niagara Falls, and he did it. First time he did it, the crowd cheered, and he did it all, the next several days. He did it in all kinds. He walked across on stilts. He, he took a stove with him and sat in a chair and cooked an omelet and ate it on a tightrope in the 19th century. And then he took a wheelbarrow and pushed it across with 350 pounds of cement in it. Then he asked the crowd, he said, who believes I can, I, can, I can push a man across in a wheelbarrow? And the crowd just erupted. I mean, they're going crazy. Yeah. And so he saw one guy just cheering his heart out. He said, sir, do you believe I can take you across in that wheelbarrow? He said, yeah. He said, sir, get in the wheelbarrow. He said, no way. No way. See, that's, faith is not just a knowledge of believing. I believe you got to get in the wheelbarrow. you got to put some feet to your faith and get in the wheelbarrow. So I pray today you've done that. And you know how to do this. You do this all the time. If you've ever had surgery and a doctor performed the surgery, which I hope they did or she did or he did, then you know what faith is because you are totally relying upon this physician to do what you can't do for yourself. I will never perform a surgery on anybody. Bell reminds me all the time, I am not a real doctor. I am a fake doctor, okay? I'm not going to prefer, so if I'm ever going to have surgery, I'm going to have to rely on somebody to do something that I cannot do for myself. If you've ever boarded a plane, you are totally relying upon the pilot to do something for you you can't do for yourself unless you're a pilot, and that's to fly you to wherever you're headed. If you've ever been in a courtroom and had an attorney represent you, they are doing something that you should not do for yourself if you're not an attorney and you cannot do for yourself. This is what faith is. You say, well, how much faith does it take to get to heaven? Here's how much faith it takes to get to heaven. You ready for that? Here's how much faith. It's not much, but every bit of ounce of faith that you have. Doesn't matter if you're five years old, whatever amount of faith you have at five years old, that's what it takes to be saved. If you're 50, whatever you happen to have at that time, that's what it takes to be saved. In other words, you can't hold anything back. You can't say, well, I believe, but I've got to help God save me. You can forget it. You can forget it. You've got to totally rely upon him to do for you what you could never do for yourself. So have you done that? If not, you can do it today. A believer, maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I can't believe God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. What is happening here? Why, why would God do that? You know why? Because God is bringing our faith to completion. That's why what he begins in you, he wants to finish in you. And so when you're saved, you don't immediately go to heaven. You're on the path to heaven. Jesus is the way to heaven. So, but along, we shouldn't be surprised that this road, uh, this following Jesus that leads to heaven is filled with dangers and toils and snares and challenges and trials. We should not be surprised because God is bringing our faith into completion. 